Okay, guys, this is a bonus episode, and um, I'm listening to Lex Friedman podcast with um, Wolfram, and he's talking about how simple concepts are grouped together to create more complicated ones. And I was just thinking um, if I could make some kind of like Lego type piece thing where we generate these blocks that will match structures in the program and have them grow out kind of like a recursive um, like a recursive thing but if we were to look at the whole structure every time and scan it and find like the best piece to place and like match the best one every time not just in a simple depth first search or anything like you would scan the whole tree what you have so far and then you would look for pieces to match together I guess you could even start with just the pieces and start putting them together start clicking them together yeah so that's kind of what I'm thinking about All right. Well, just my thought for now. Good evening, people of Earth. This is your host, the Hacker Mike, whose mind has been totally destroyed by Stephen Wolfram. With his new physics idea, and who's also talking about these bubbles of irreducibility or reducibility just like I have been so it's really um, been a crazy couple of days since that uh, Lex Friedman interview with Joe Rogan what's up guys and uh, pretty crazy I can't even begin to explain everything and I'm gonna have to listen to everything over and over and over again but Wolfram said that we're not able to outthink the girdle paradox we're not able to step out of the loop and understand it because we're in it so that he's saying that even the human brain cannot recognize the holding problem itself okay so that's something that's going to have to definitely be um, looked into And um, but yes, pockets of reducibility, pockets of life are um, what we live in. Now I have a. Uh, I was talking to Harry Reid. We did a whole episode yesterday, so 8x8.bc is no longer working. They're not responding to my emails. They want money. And um, I went to Jitsi and I can't record. So it looks like uh, my recordings are lost on uh, Jitsi. We don't have any way to do. How's it going? We don't have any way to do any recordings now for calls using Jitsi. So <clears throat> we're going to have to check that out. But I said to uh, Harry Reid, aka Chicken Jar, why don't you just record a podcast 
and send it to me and I'll listen to it and I'll give you my commentary. Like, why do we have to be talking interactively? <clears throat> yeah, to any of my listeners, send me a link, send me a clip, and we can go over it. Although I'm not, a, I'm not so excited about going over the topic of Federal Reserve and the gold endlessly, to be honest. So, but I am more interested in the endless loops for the girdles. I was saying to her, Reed, that um, Facebook is not free, it's just a minimum wage job where you're paying for your hosting by looking at advertising. And, um, Basically, <clears throat> that's how you pay for the hosting of all your pictures. And also, you pay Google by clicking, because you're part of the Google system, where it's learning from you. It needs, as it's a symbiotic system that needs the human brain to survive. So, <clears throat> time to feed the chickens. I'll be back for more. Okay, hell, we get four hours of this to clip. And then, um, I mean, it's just crazy, crazy, crazy amounts of data that they're dropping on us, this guy. So, we're gonna start, I'm gonna clip out the pieces that I think are interesting, and then we're gonna do some deep dives into them. All right. So, in our first, clip from Wolfram, he's going to talk about simple programs that can model complicated things. And uh, <clears throat> using programs, not formulas, to model the world. So, and he mentions the principle of computational equivalence which we're going to have to look up and save on our recursion list of things to look at. You know, at which point was there a thing where your eyes light up? It's like, wait a minute, there's something here. Is it the very first idea or is it some moment along the line of implementations and experiments and yeah, so on? There's, there's a couple of different stages to this. I mean, one is the think about the world computationally you know, can we use programs instead of equations to make models of the world? That's something that I got interested in in the at the beginning of the 1980s. You know, I did a bunch of computer experiments. Uh, you know, when I first did them, I didn't really, I, I could see some significance to them, but it took me a few years to really say, wow, there's a, a big important phenomenon here that lets sort of complex things arise from very simple programs. Um, that kind of happened back in 1984 or so. Then, you know, a bunch of other years go by. Then I start actually doing uh, a lot of much more systematic computer experiments and things and find out that the, you know, this phenomenon that I could only have said occurs in one particular case is actually something incredibly general. And then that led me to this thing called principle of computational equivalence. And that was a, a long story. And then, you know, as part of that process, I was like, okay, you can make simple programs, can make models of complicated things. What about the whole universe? That's our sort of ultimate example of a complicated thing. Yeah. And so I got to thinking, you know, could we use these ideas to to study fundamental physics? Uh, you know, I happen to know a lot about, you know, tradition. Now, he's going to mention that it's leadership that creates the, um, that brings the idea into the world. And it's funny because I also mentioned that, and you're going to see so many parallels to what I've been talking about in this podcast. It's almost like, and I wrote to Lex on Twitter, I said it's like a synchronicity. Because I've been talking about these things, and then I find him talking about these things with um, Wolfram as well. And obviously, you know, we're all connected somehow. 
and um, yeah I mean I'm just a little slug in the grass for these guys but uh, it's quite interesting one person responsible for these revolutions that that creates the spark or one or two whatever but or is it just the big mush and mess and chaos of of people interacting of personalities interacting i think it ends up being like many things there's leadership and there ends up being it's a lot easier for one person to have a crisp new idea than it is for a big committee to have a crisp new idea yeah. and um i think you know but i think it, it can happen that you know you have a great idea but the world isn't ready for you for it and um you know you can you can i mean this has happened to me plenty right it's you know you have an idea it's actually a pretty good idea but things aren't ready either either you're not really ready for it or the ambient world isn't ready for it and it's hard to get the thing to to get traction so basically he's going to say next that um We need to study the computational universe, not their formulas, but their programs. And um, he talks about these rules and rule number 30. And um, I think if these things are not, so basically cellular autonomy, they follow very simple rules, but they produce unpredictable results. And I'm thinking that um, given a seed number, I mean, we're going to be able to store the information about what's it going to do in certain iterations. I think it's predictable, or is it not predictable? So that's the question I have. Is it like unpredictable, meaning we don't know what it's going to do in the future, or is it unpredictable, meaning we don't know what it's going to do now like it will do something different at the one thousand thousandth iteration that would be interesting to know so we should look that up right now but um what i want to get off my chest here now i think this is a good time to say it is um, if the world is not knowable and we can't know the, if we can't predict things, but we do have explorers in, in this um, sphere of computation and the explorers are the people who go there so, and I'm thinking that, you know, given these open source records, see, this is the whole idea of the introspector again. I'm going to keep on harping on it. The narrative. If we have records of what people have done in the past, what points are available, what uh, what parts they hit, how was it used, and um, basically we don't need to predict because we know what's going to happen, right? So we have like trails in the wilderness, let's just call it the wilderness of computation. And we have people who... Uh, who have been to those trails and they trailblazed it for us well then I think that is something that is interesting and good to learn from and we don't need a generic computation we need to be able to learn from what other people have done and maybe we need to apply something like machine learning or other patterns. I mean, as I said, I think maybe like Lego pieces, maybe we could fit small pieces, small patterns, and build bigger and bigger blocks and that fit into source code. And I think I'm going to actually start uh, really working on 
you know, making little machines that will walk through these graphs and uh, recognize patterns, like small ones, micro patterns. And as I said, we'll build up bigger and bigger ones and not necessarily from a, um, a blind perspective. What if it actually tries to make a decision every time, as I said before? Even ask the user for some input, you know, like the Google does, involve the user. But uh, maybe he's going to tell us that it's not possible at all. But we're going to see. I'm going to do some experiments. We're going to find out. So let's play this next clip because it's pretty important. Study of the abstract behavior of the computational universe. That should be a big thing that lots of people do. You it's mean in mathematics purely, almost like... It's like pure mathematics, but it isn't mathematics. But it isn't. It, it isn't. It's, it's a new kind of mathematics. It's, it's a, a new title kind of the book. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's title. why the book is called that. <laughs> right. That's, that's not coincidental. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that I haven't seen really rigorous investigation by thousands of people of this idea. I mean, you look at your competition around rule 30. I mean, that's fascinating. If you, if you can say something. Okay, now here comes probably the most important clip so far. <clears throat> He's saying no matter how smart you are, you cannot get ahead of some things. You don't know what they're going to do. And even if you understand how they work, they'll be unpredictable, un unreducible. <clears throat> so that's, we're going to have to let that sink in. And I guess this applies to the Schrodinger cat, maybe, um, or these rules of these um, unpredictable uh, Turing machines are these uh, unpredictable <clears throat> cellular automata rule number 30 um, so we're going to have to understand this a lot better and um, but he's saying that there's a scientific limit to what we can understand and we can't get ahead of it so And uh, as I was saying before, well, we can't get ahead of it, but maybe we can get behind it. We can't predict what it will do, but we have maybe people observing the front line and uh, recording their experience and what happened. But maybe those experiences will be for naught because we can't do anything with them. We will see. So this is going to be the topic, and we're going to have to learn more about this. Yeah, and now he's going to talk about sampling, the reducibility, and, and sharing it, and focusing on what areas are reducible. Well, as I said to you before, if we focus on pieces of software where we actually um, we create a closed system, and then we focus just on them, we can reduce the whole thing down a lot more. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just imagine if you wanted to hyper-optimize your system just to run, let's say, certain operations in Git or certain operations in Emacs, like hyper-specialization, rewrite the entire file system so that it's hyper-optimized just for, that, for those operations. I don't know. Instead of making stuff generic and reusable, you make it very specific. Like, why don't you use a file system that's designed for Git to hold your Git repositories? I mean, why not? <clears throat> or even an operating system designed for Git to run your Git. Because, hey, if it's all running in a container, it's all containerized, like you could have like a custom function for just for that one purpose. Yeah, that's a pretty cool idea. <laughs> All right. Well, let's play this clip because this guy is just really 
And it's so funny, I feel such a kinship with him because he's hitting so many of the ideas I've talked about. It's like we're on the same wavelength. Thing. Right. Is there some aspect of this thing that could be predicted? That's the right. fundamental question of science. That's at the well, core. Well, that has been a question of science. I think that's a, that is a, some people's view of what science is about. And it's not clear that's the right view. In fact, as we, as we live through this pandemic full of predictions and so on, it's an interesting moment to be pondering what, what science's actual role in those kinds of things is. Oh, you think it's possible that in science, clean, beautiful, simple prediction may not even be possible in real systems? That's the open... Right. Question I don't think I it's don't... open. I think that question is answered and the answer is no. <laughs> well, mean, no, no. The... the answer could be just humans are not smart enough yet. Um, like we don't have no, the tools no, yet. No, that's, that's the whole point. I mean, that's, that's sort of the big discovery of this principle of computational equivalence of mine. And um, the, uh, you know, this is something which is kind of a follow-on to Gödel's theorem, to Turing's work on the halting problem, all these kinds of things, that there is this fundamental limitation built into science this idea of computational irreducibility that says that, you know, even though you may know the rules by which something operates, that does not mean that you can uh, readily sort of be smarter than it and jump ahead and figure out what it's going to do. That's yes, but... Yeah, and now he's going to talk about sampling, the reducibility and, and sharing it and focusing on what areas are reducible. Well, as I said to you before, if we focus on pieces of software where we actually um, we create a closed system and then we focus just on them, we can reduce the whole thing down a lot more. Um, <clears throat> I mean, just imagine if you wanted to hyper-optimize your system just to run let's say, certain operations in Git or certain operations in Emacs, like hyper-specialization, rewrite the entire file system so that it's hyper-optimized just for, that, for those operations. I don't know. Instead of making stuff generic and reusable, you make it very specific. Like, why don't you use a file system that's designed for Git to hold your Git repositories? I mean, why not? <clears throat> or even an operating system designed for Git to run your Git. Because, hey, if it's all running in a container, it's all containerized, like you could have like a custom function for just for that one purpose. Yeah, that's a pretty cool idea. <laughs> all right. Well, let's play this clip because this guy is just really... And it's so funny, I feel such a kinship with him because he's hitting so many of the ideas I've talked about. It's like we're on the same wavelength. But do you think there's a hope for pockets of computational reducibility, computational re, oh, reducibility? reducibility. Yeah. Yes. Like that's, yes. So, and, then, and then a set of tools and mathematics that help you discover such pockets. That's I mean, where we live, is in the pockets of reducibility. Right. That's why, you know, and this is one of the things that sort of come out of this physics project and actually something that, again, I should have realized many years ago, but didn't, um, is, uh, you know, the, it, it could very well be that everything about the world is computationally irreducible and completely unpredictable. But, you know, in our experience of the world, there is at least some amount of prediction we can make. And that's because we have sort of chosen a slice of, um, probably talk about this in, in much more detail, but I mean, we've kind of chosen a slice of how to think about the universe in which we can kind of sample a certain amount of computational reducibility. And that's, that's sort of where we, where we exist. Um, and uh, it may not be the whole story of how the universe is, but it is the part of the universe that we care about and we sort of operate in. And um, that's, you know, in science, that's been sort of a very special case of that. That is, science has chosen to talk a lot about places where there is this computational reducibility that it can find. You know, the motion of the planets can be more or less predicted. You know, the, uh, uh, something about the weather is much harder to predict. Something about, uh, you know, other kinds of things the, the, um, are much harder to predict. And it, it's... Um, 
Yeah, now he's going to talk about the zone of reducibility and how if you go from one step to the next, you can do like these stepping zones. But if you're thrown in something by nature, you have no predictability at all. Some uh, these are, but science has tended to, you know, concentrate itself on places where its methods have allowed successful prediction. So you think rule 30, if we could linger on it, because it's just such a beautiful, simple formulation of the essential concept underlying all the things we're talking about. Do you think there's pockets of reducibility inside rule 30? Yes, but it's a question of how big are they, what will they allow you to say, and so on. And that's and figuring out where those pockets are, I mean, in a sense, that's the, that's sort of a, uh, uh, you know, that is an essential thing that one would like to do in science. Um, but it's, it's also the, the important thing to realize that, that has not been, you know, is, is that science, if you just pick an arbitrary thing, you say, what's the answer to this question? That question may not be one that has a computationally reducible answer. That question, if you, if you choose, you know, if, if you walk along the series of questions and you've got one that's reducible and you get to another one that's nearby and it's reducible too, if you stick to that kind of stick to the land, so to speak, yeah. then you can go down this chain of sort of reducible, answerable things. But if you just say, I'm just pick a question at random, I'm going to have my computer pick a question at random. Yeah. Uh, most likely know, it's going to be reducible. Most likely it will be irreducible. And, and what we're throwing in the world, so to speak, uh, we, you know, when we engineer things, we tend to engineer things to sort of keep in the zone of reducibility. When we're throwing things by the natural world, for example, not, not at all certain that we will be kept in this kind of zone of reducibility. Can we okay, now here's an interesting idea that computational irreducibility is the meaning of life because otherwise things would be boring. You wouldn't know. Um, <clears throat> what's going to happen? Okay, well, let's say that we go back to our closed world idea and you have your Git repository and um, you have the entire history of the Linux kernel on that Git. Well, even if it's all happened, it's still such a humongous repository and history and so many changes that, okay, fine. It is um, computationally, like, you know what happened, but there's so much that happened that um, maybe you can't s compute everything for every step of the way so that um, it could still be interesting. That's one thing. And the second of all, if you um, are going to uh, super optimize your editor, you still want to be able to edit other files. Like you don't want to hard code it into one file. So you definitely still want um, the irreducible nature of your tool chain to be able to be able to use for other things. I'm just saying I want to train it on a history and then um, like maybe apply machine learning to it and like optimize it for general use cases and have it like guess at things. Be cool. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I think we're gonna find some kind of happy medium. Okay, now he's gonna say it exactly what this thing is, this irreducibility and computational equivalence that we wanted. And he's saying that our mind is made of or operates on the same stuff that everything else operates on. And that something when it reaches a certain level of complexity is just as complex as what we're doing so that we can't outrun it. And that might be why playing Minecraft is so fun because it has that certain amount of irreducibility and randomness and unpredictability and it's a generic programming system that you can construct almost anything so that you can create situations which are basically 
computationally equivalent to the brain and therefore unpredictable and interesting to play with. So there we go. Compute Minecraft is computationally equivalent to the human brain is basically what we're learning here. All right, so I should be ashamed to play Minecraft. I mean, the whole of it is fascinating. Uh, I, I'm like you, also very optimistic, but uh, there's a feel, just you said uh, the computational reducibility. There's uh, always a fear of the darkness of the uncertainty bef before well, yeah. us. Yeah, and no, it's scary. I mean, I mean, the thing is, if you knew everything, it would be boring. <laughs> and, yeah. and it would be, and, and then, um, uh, and, and worse than boring, so to speak. It would be, you, it would reveal the pointlessness, so to speak. And in a sense, the, the fact that there is this computational irreducibility, it's like as we live our lives, so to speak, something is being achieved. We're computing what our lives, you know, uh, you know what happens in our lives. That's funny. So the, the computational irreducibility is kind of like, it gives the meaning to life. It is the meaning of life. Computational irreducibility is the meaning of life. There you it's, go. It, it gives it meaning. Yes. I mean, it, <laughs> it, 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 it's, what, it's what causes it to not be something where you can just say, uh, you know, you went through all those steps to live your life, but we already knew what the answer was. Right. Hold on one second. Um, uh, these are, but science has tended to, you know, concentrate itself on places where its methods have allowed successful prediction. So you think rule 30, if we could linger on it, because it's just such a beautiful, simple formulation of the essential concept underlying all the things we're talking about. Do you think there's pockets of reducibility inside rule 30? Yes. But it's a question of how big are they, what will they allow you to say, and so on. And that's and figuring out where those pockets are. I mean, in a sense, that's the that's sort of a uh, uh, you know that is an essential thing that one would like to do in science. Um, but it's it's also the the important thing to realize that that has not been, you know, is is that science. If you just pick an arbitrary thing, you say, what's the answer to this question? That question may not be one that has a computationally reducible answer. That question, if you, if you choose, you know, if, if you walk along the series of questions and you've got one that's reducible and you get to another one that's nearby and it's reducible too, if you stick to that kind of stick to the land, so to speak, yeah. then you can go down this chain of sort of reducible, answerable things. But if you just say, I'm just pick a question at random, I'm going to have my computer pick a question at random. Yeah. Uh, most likely know, it's going to be irreducible. Most likely it will be irreducible. And, and what we're throwing in the world, so to speak, uh, we, you know, when we engineer things, we tend to engineer things to sort of keep in the zone of reducibility. When we're throwing things by the natural world, for example, not, not at all certain that we will be kept in this kind of zone of reducibility. Can we okay, now he's going to say it exactly what this thing is, this irreducibility and computational equivalence that we wanted and he's saying that our mind is made of or operates on the same stuff that everything else operates on and that something when it reaches a certain level of complexity is just as complex as what we're doing so that we can't outrun it and that might be why playing minecraft is so fun because it has that certain amount of irreducibility and randomness and unpredictability. And it's a generic programming system that you can construct almost anything so that you can create situations which are basically computationally equivalent to the brain and therefore unpredictable and interesting to play with. So there we go. Compute Minecraft is computationally equivalent to the human brain. Is basically what we're learning here. All right. So I should be ashamed to play Minecraft. I mean, the whole of it is fascinating. Uh, I, I'm like you, also very optimistic. But uh, there's a feel. Just you said uh, the computational reducibility. There's uh, always a fear of the darkness of the uncertainty. Before well, yeah. us, yeah, and no, it's scary. I mean, I mean, the thing is, if you knew everything, it would be boring, <laughs> and yeah. and it would be, and and then, um, uh, 
uh, and, and worse than boring, so to speak. It would be you. It would reveal the pointlessness, so to speak. And in a sense, the the fact that there is this computational irreducibility, it's like as we live our lives, so to speak, something is being achieved. We're computing what our lives, you know, uh, you know what happens in our lives. That's funny. So the, the computational irreducibility is kind of like it gives the meaning to life. It is the meaning of life. Computational irreducibility is the meaning of life. There you it's, go. It, it gives it meaning. Yes, <laughs> I mean it, it. It it it's what it's what causes it to not be something where you can just say. Uh, you know, you went through all those steps to live your life, but we already knew what the answer was. Right. Hold on one second. Okay, well, I'm not going to play every single part of this podcast. We're going to also skip over some stuff. And he's going to say that there's infinite number of pockets of ir irreducibility and that in the future we could get more detail about things, collect more data, and that um, we could predict more and more and more. Okay. But um, I still think that there's a retrospective that's very interesting. Um, in the software world. And that um, we can't predict the future, but we can analyze the past, the death. And we can collect all types of information about what happened. <clears throat> And we can do better and better at auditing. And I think um, the big, the big area where I can maybe make a difference is reduce the size of the runtime data that's collected. Let's say if we know exactly uh, what happened, um, and we know exactly, uh, you know, if we're replaying something. Um, <clears throat> creating reproducible builds um, that the actual runtime information that's being produced the size of that can be reduced enormously I think with compression because we know what's going to happen and we can replay it multiple times let's say um, and that we can reduce the um, uncertainty so that we can actually get full knowledge maybe theoretically or approach some closer approximation of full knowledge of what happened so um, that would be really interesting would be very interesting so let's uh, think about that some more wow now this is where he really nails us and he's saying that the weather is exhibiting a <clears throat> equivalent computation the weather is computing everything is computing chaos is computing and that is computationally equivalent to us so we're basically talking about alien um, or non-human computational equivalents that we can't comprehend, we can't apprehend it, we can't predict it. That's pretty deep shit. And, um, well, the idea that I'm also getting is that, you know, <clears throat> You have no idea. You know, we talked about the anthropomorphizing of everything. Well, now we're talking about the dehumanizing of computation and how there is no meta narrative, no master narrative, no meta story. Well, that's what um, that's what he's saying. He's basically saying postmodern. This is postmodernism, what he's talking about right here, on, on, a, on a much deeper level. Where the control of things is actually in, in the atoms, in the molecules, in whatever it is, in the world. And 
the only thing that we're doing is we're just labeling it. There's also theories which say that, um, you know, all we're doing is kind of making things up. And, um, uh, making things up as we go to kind of explain uh, what our body's doing, like our consciousness is just like lagging behind our actual body and it's just like kind of coming up with a narrative to explain what happens but doesn't really know. I mean, think about that. What if the universe is the seat of power? I mean, that's kind of like a satanic idea of the uh, of the earth controlling the spirit right and um, that's some pretty crazy shit right there <sighs> wow we're gonna have to really really think about this and uh, and chew on it for a while actual beautiful complexity Absolutely. going on similar Absolutely. to the kind of complexity we think of that creates rich experience in human life and life on earth. Yes. So those little molecules interact in complex ways that there could be intelligence in that. There could be Absolutely. I mean this this is the this is what you learn wow, from that's this a principle. Hopeful message. <laughs> right. I mean this is what you kind of learn from this principle of computational equivalence. Yeah. You learn it's both a a message of of sort of hope and a message of kind of you know, there's, you're not as special as you think you are, so to speak. I mean, because, you know, we, we imagine that with sort of all the things we do with, with human intelligence and all that kind of thing, and all of the stuff we've constructed in science, it's like, we're very special. But actually, it turns out, well, no, we're not. We're just doing computations like things in nature do computations, like those gas molecules do computations, like the weather does computations. The only, the only thing about the computations that we do that's really special is that we understand what they are, so to speak. In other words, we have a, you know, to us they're special because kind of they're connected to our purposes, our ways of thinking about things and so on. And that's, um, but so-, so That's you know, very human centric. That's we're just attached is. to this kind of thing. So let's talk a little bit of physics. Maybe let's ask the, uh, the biggest question. What is a theory of everything? Okay, now I'm gonna skip over the entire section of physics and some really interesting discussion because all I care about right now is computation and his representation of this computation. He's starting to talk about the graphs, the hypergraphs, and this ties into the um, introspector, to the compiler graphs, to the abstract syntax trees, and the entire representation of code. <clears throat> So I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Computer screen is made of discrete pixels, yet we have the, you know, we have the idea that we're seeing these continuous pictures. I mean, it's, you know, the fact that on a large scale, continuity can arise from lots of discrete elements. This is at some level unsurprising now. But, wait, 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 wait. but the pixels have uh, a very definitive structure of neighbors uh, on, on a computer screen. Right. There's so, no concept of spatial, of space inherent in the underlying fabric of reality. Right, right, right. So, so the, the, the point is, that, but there are cases where there are. So for example, let's just imagine you have a square grid, okay? And at every point on the grid, you have one of these atoms of space and it's connected to four other, four other atoms of space on the you know, northeast, southwest yeah. corners, right? Um, there you have something where if you zoom out from that, Got it's it. like a computer screen. Yeah. So the relationship creates the, the spatial, like right. the relationship creates a constraint, which then in an emergent sense creates a, like, yeah, like a, uh, basically a spatial coordinate for yes. that thing. Yeah. Right. Even though. The individual point doesn't have a spatial. Even though the individual point doesn't know anything, it just knows what its you know what its neighbors are. The on a large scale, it can be described by saying, "Oh, it looks like it's a you know this grid zoomed out grid." You can say, "Well, you can describe these different points by saying they have certain positions, coordinates, etc." Now, 
in the in the sort of real setup, it's more complicated than that. It isn't just a square grid or something. It's something much more dynamic and complicated, which we'll talk about. But um, uh, so you know, first the first. Yeah, now he's going to start introducing the hypergraph and the graph, <clears throat> and basically he's going to say that the there are no. Um, things in space there's only a network of space and the space is the hypergraph and everything exists in it and then he's going to kind of say that things in reality are just like spaceships that move along that graph or are connected together but all shift together on the graph somehow or like spaceships in the um in the uh cellular automaton so that's kind of interesting. Computer screen is made of discrete pixels. Yet we have the, you know, we have the idea that we're seeing these continuous pictures. I mean, it's, you know, the fact that on a large scale, continuity can arise from lots of discrete elements. This is at some level unsurprising now. But, wait, 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 wait. But the pixels have uh, a very definitive structure of neighbors uh, on, on a computer screen. Right. There's so, no concept of spatial, of space inherent in the underlying fabric of reality. Right, right, right. So, so the, the, the point is, that, but there are cases where there are. So for example, let's just imagine you have a square grid, okay? And at every point on the grid, you have one of these atoms of space and it's connected to four other, four other atoms of space on the you know, northeast, southwest yeah. corners, right? Um, there you have something where if you zoom out from that, Got it's it. like a computer screen. Yeah. So the relationship creates the, the spatial, like right. the relationship creates a constraint, which then in an emergent sense creates a, like, yeah, like a, uh, basically a spatial coordinate for yes. that thing. Yeah. Right. Even though. The individual point doesn't have a space. Even though the individual point doesn't know anything, it just knows what its you know what its neighbors are. The on a large scale, it can be described by saying, "Oh, it looks like it's a you know this grid zoomed out grid." You can say, "Well, you can describe these different points by saying they have certain positions, coordinates, etc." Now, in the in the sort of real setup, it's more complicated than that. It isn't just a square grid or something. It's something much more dynamic and complicated, which we'll talk about. But um, uh, so, you know, first, the first. Yeah, so in the next clip, he's really going to go into these particles as just being features that are constructed in the graph. He hasn't talked about how they move yet and how energy happens and time happens. But we're going to get there and computation. So this is going to be, we're going to get deeper and deeper into this. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to cover all of this in today's episode, but we're going to continue on this topic for a couple of episodes at least until we get to the bottom of it until we bottom out because maybe he has hit the uh, the mother load of the reducibility you know we're just like <clears throat> Minecraft miners with pickaxe just hitting away at these little pockets of reducibility oh yeah okay here we go Okay, so this is where I'm going to add in some ideas of mine. Well, first of all, he's going to say that they're going to describe space. So, in the computing world, it's all data. So, first of all, we have a lot of data. We have a lot of data types. You have a lot of declarations. You have a lot of stuff that's not in action yet. It's just there. Okay? And when we talk about change over time okay those are like version trees for example not only version trees because that's the change in the structure over time but um <clears throat> we also have we also have to have the execution of things but just imagine first of all we can describe all of the computation um, and all of the programs as declarations in this hypergraph taking up space because Okay, if Wolfram Alpha, if Wolfram is, is true and um, everything can be represented in these graphs, then electrons can be represented in these, in, in these graphs. And then 
data, static data in the world can be represented as macro structures in these graphs. So our programs that we write live in these graphs and they're going to be in the hypergraph, okay? We're going to have bits and bytes encoded in the hypergraph. So we could just call them hyperbits or hyperstructures. And if we have a graph in the graph, like if we represent a graph in the graph, then we can graph while we're graphing. You know what I'm saying? So we can uh, represent computation while we're computing. You know? We're going to get into this recursion no matter what. But um, in the closed world model, okay, we know everything that's going to happen, right, up to a certain point. Like, we have a huge sample, and we can reproduce it. So, okay, but uh, this, let's play this short clip, and um, I'm just really getting excited about this, because they're going to start getting into transformations in time and, and computation. So now he's going to say uh, that... You know, we're just the froth. Like, the things that we care about are just a super, super tiny fraction of all the things that are out there. And that, um, I was just thinking, like, the sidewalk that I'm looking at, like, and the light reflecting on it hitting my eyes, like, all those things that we see is just a, such a small percentage of the vastness of being. Tiny, tiny slice. Hypergraph. So one thing you might ask is, you know, if you just look at this hypergraph and you say, and we're going to talk about sort of what the hypergraph does, but if you say, you know, how much of what's going on in this hypergraph is things we know and care about, like particles and atoms and electrons and all this kind of thing, and how much is just the background of space? Mm -hmm. So it turns out so far as in one rough estimate of this, or everything that we care about in the universe is only one part in 10 to the 120 of what's actually going on. The vast majority of what's happening is purely things that maintain the structure of space. That, in other words, the, the things that are the features of space that are the things that we consider notable, like the presence of particles and so on, that's a tiny little piece of froth on the top of all this activity that mostly is just intended to, you know, mostly I can't say intended, there's no intention here, that just maintains the structure of space. It, let, me, let me load that in. It's, uh, it just makes me feel so good as a human being. <laughs> well, to, to be I, the froth on the one in the 10 to the 120 or something of, well. And the, also just humbling um, how in this mathematical framework, how much work needs to be done on the infrastructure. Right, of yes, that's... Okay, so time is an event in, re in a rewrite rule that's gonna go in and take something in the graph and change it. And he's saying they're occurring asynchronously, and he's saying that they can happen wherever, but that these replacements, that these patterns create chains, and those chains define the time. So there's not necessarily a time. There are just steps where those replacements take place, and one causes the other, and they happen in a chain. So I'm just imagining what the um, what the memory is going to happen if, if if you have to keep all of those chains. I guess they're going to replace them and write some kind of log. I hope he explains it more. Yes, that's our the, universe. Right to maintain the infrastructure of our universe is a lot of work. We are we are merely writing a little tiny things on top of that infrastructure. But 
But you know, you, you were just starting to to talk a little bit about what you know. We talked about you know space that represents all the stuff that's in the universe. The question is, what does that stuff do? And for that, we have to start talking about time and what is time and so on. And you know, one of the the basic idea of this model is time is the progression of computation. So in other words, we have a a structure of space. And there is a rule that says how that structure of space will change. And it's the application, the repeated application of that rule that defines the progress of time. Um, and what does the rule look like in, so, the, in the space of hypergraphs? Right. So what the rule says is something like, if you have a little tiny piece of hypergraph that looks like this, then it will be transformed into a piece of hypergraph that looks like this. So that's all it says. It says you pick up these elements of space and the, you can think of these, these uh, edges, these hyper edges as being relations between elements in space. You might pick up uh, these two relations between elements in space. And we're not saying where those elements are or what they are, but every time there's a certain arrangement of elements in space, then arrangement in the sense of the way they're connected, then we transform it into some other arrangement. So there's a little tiny pattern and you transform it into another little pattern. That's right. And then... Because of this, I mean, again, it's kind of similar to cellular automata in that, like, yes, on paper the rule looks like super simple. It's like, uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right. From this, the universe can be born. Uh, but like, right. once you start applying it, beautiful structure starts being uh, potentially can be created. And what you're doing is you're applying that rule to different parts. Like right. to any time you match it within the hypergraph. Exactly. And then one of the like incredibly beautiful and interesting things to think about is the order in which you apply that rule. Yes. Because that pattern appears all over the place. Right. So this is a big, complicated thing, very hard yeah. to wrap one's brain around. Okay. So so you, you say the rule is every time you see this little pattern, transform it in this way. But yet... You know, as you look around the space that represents the universe, there may be zillions of places where that little pattern occurs. Yeah. So, so what, what, what it says is just do this, apply this rule wherever you feel like. And what, what is extremely non-trivial is, well, okay, so, so this is happening sort of in, in computer science terms sort of asynchronously. You're just doing it wherever, wherever you feel like doing it. And the only constraint is that if you're going to apply the rule somewhere, the the things to which you apply the rule, the, the little you know elements to which you apply the rule, if they if they have to be okay, well you can think of each application of the rule as being kind of an event that happens in the universe. Yep. And these the input to an event has to be ready for the event to occur. That is, if one event occurred, if one transformation occurred, and it produced a particular atom of space, then that atom of space has to already exist before another uh, transformation that's going to apply to that atom of space can occur. So yeah, that so that's be... like the prerequisite for the event. That's it has right. To exist. That's right. So it, it, that defines a kind of uh, this sort of set of causal relationships between events. Between events, it says this event happens, has to have happened before this event. Right. But that is. Um, but that's that's not a very limiting constraint. No, it's that's, not. And what's it's still you still get the zillion uh that's a technical yeah, well, term <laughs> options. That's correct. But but okay, so th this is where things get a little bit more elaborate, but, but, but they're mind-blowing. So <laughs> Right, but so so what 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 happens is so the first thing you might say is, you know, let's well okay, so so this question about the freedom of which which event yeah. you do when well, let me let me sort of state an answer and then explain it. Okay, <laughs> the the um, the validity of special relativity is a consequence of the fact that, in some sense, it doesn't matter in what order you do these underlying things, so long as they respect this kind of set of causal relationships. So, and that's that's uh, in a, the the part that's in a certain sense is a really important one. But the fact that it it sometimes doesn't matter that's a uh, I don't know. What to, that's another like beautiful well, okay, thing. Okay, so, so th there's this idea of 
what I call causal invariance. Causal invariance, exactly. Right. That's so, so that's really, a, really powerful, right. powerful it's idea. It's a powerful idea which has actually arisen in different forms many times in the history of mathematics, mathematical logic, even computer science, has many different names. Um, I mean, our particular version of it is a little bit tighter than other versions, but it's basically the same idea. Here's, here's how to think about that idea. Okay, friends. This was one of the most amazing episodes of the podcast for me personally. And I hope you enjoyed it. And um, this one's going to go down in my list of great episodes that I learned a lot from because in creating it, I'm listening to each clip and thinking about it and giving it to the narrative and trying to fit it into my personal model of things, you know, assigning meaning to it. So, yeah, thanks for listening. And we're going to continue. Um, I'll tell you where we are. Well, we'll find this spot in the uh, in the four-hour talk from from them. Uh,